An international crisis is a little like a relay race. For the nuclear crisis with Iran, the starting gun was when Corey Hinderstein found a secret nuclear facility near Natanz, and CNN published a satellite image of it. Now the baton passes into the hands of diplomats and government officials. It's their problem now. They have to react. I can categorically tell you that Iran does not have a nuclear weapons program. This is Javad Zarif, speaking on CNN in 2002. At the time, he's Iran's ambassador to the United Nations. Any facility that we have in Iran, including including any satellite photographs of any facility that you may have, if it is dealing with nuclear technology, it is within the purview of our peaceful nuclear energy program. Zarif isn't admitting to much on television. But behind the scenes in Iran, an argument breaks out over what to do. There are people who want Iran to press ahead and build a bomb. But there are others inside Iran who want to stop the nuclear program and try to settle the crisis with diplomacy. Then, a message arrives at the U.S. State Department. It's actually a fax from the Swiss embassy in Tehran. The fax is completely out of the blue. There's a cover letter from the Swiss ambassador, and beneath is a proposal. A proposal, he says, from the Iranians. The proposal contains an invitation to completely change U.S.-Iran relations, not just solve Iran's nuclear program, but to address everything else. Terrorism, Israel, everything. It is so ambitious that almost no one in the Bush administration takes it seriously. Some wonder who the author really is. The Iranians? Or just the Swiss ambassador trying to be helpful? Others just aren't in a talking mood. What the Bush State Department doesn't know? The blind animosity and antagonism of the United States towards Iran needs to be re-examined in light. Is that this guy, Iran's man at the UN, Javad Zarif? He might be on cable TV lambasting the United States? But he is also the man behind the Swiss facts. He is the force behind the proposal to negotiate. This is a necessity that your government will come to understand uh, in, in due process of time. Zarif has tried to open what's called a back channel to talk privately to the United States. The facts is a legitimate invitation authorized by the highest levels of the Iranian government to talk about Iran's nuclear program. Not arguing about satellite photographs on CNN, sitting at a table, face to face. It doesn't work. In 2003, Zarif's proposal goes nowhere. But Zarif is right about one thing. The United States will, in the due process of time, see the need for a back channel. It will take a decade. You're listening to The Deal, the story of the Iran nuclear deal. How it came together, how it fell apart, and what that means for the rest of us. This is Episode 2, The Back Channel. In 2009, the chance of the U.S. and Iran sitting down and talking started to look a little more promising. To those... To those who cling to power through corruption and deceit and the silencing of dissent, 
Know that you are on the wrong side of history, but that we will extend a hand if you are willing to unclench your fist. That extended hand comes in the form of a video message from the new president. Today I want to extend my very best wishes to all who are celebrating Nowruz around the world. This holiday is both an ancient ritual and a moment... Obama records the message for the Iranian New Year, Nowruz. The video shows Barack Obama sitting there in his typical dark suit and blue silk tie. I want you, the people and leaders of Iran, to understand the future that we seek. My administration is now committed to diplomacy and to pursuing constructive ties among the United States, Iran, and the international community. Wishing Iran a Happy New Year isn't a huge change, but it's a start, a hint of things to come. Thank you, and Ed E. Shoma Mubarak. Solving the nuclear problem with Iran is going to require more than a video message. It's going to require a sustained diplomatic effort and a team of tough negotiators. My master's degree is in social work as a community organizer and as a clinician, and I often joke that my clinical skills have helped me a lot with dictators and members of Congress. This is Ambassador Wendy Sherman. After a career in social work, she got involved in politics, specifically on Capitol Hill, working for a woman from Maryland named Barbara Mikulski. Mikulski was a trailblazer. She was eventually elected to the U.S. Senate. Being a woman in politics is still tough, But back then, Mikulski had to deal not just with legislation, but also with an astounding amount of sexism. There was even a rule at the time forbidding women from wearing pants on the Senate floor. Mikulski broke it. Through it all, Wendy Sherman was right there. She served as Mikulski's chief of staff in the House, and then she ran her winning Senate campaign. Wendy Sherman is a person that a senator, a secretary of state, or a president can rely on. Under Obama, she became the third-ranking official at the U.S. State Department. That put her in charge of pretty much everything. In the four years that I was the Undersecretary of State, I went to 54 countries, uh, worked on lots of other efforts, South Sudan crisis, issues in Latin America, issues in Europe, Ukraine, of course. That's a lot. But there was one more issue. And I went to Bill. That's Bill Burns, who had just been promoted to the number two person at state. And I said, I certainly don't want to take things away from you. Everybody hopes the Iran negotiation will go somewhere. Would you like to hold on to it? And he said, it's all yours. No, I did not know what I was walking into. And I didn't have much time to think about it. What she walked into was a mess. The nuclear crisis with Iran still felt like it was edging toward war. In 2009, not long after Obama offered his New Year's greeting, Iran admitted it had been building a new underground plant to enrich uranium called the Fordo Fuel Enrichment Plant near a place called Combe. The Fordo plant is buried much, much deeper than the one at Natanz that Corey Hinderstein found, almost 300 feet under a mountain where not even the most powerful conventional U.S. bomb could destroy it. The only thing in the U.S. arsenal that could knock it out would be a nuclear weapon. In 2011, this became Wendy Sherman's problem. When Bill Burns said, it is all yours, the it was representing the U.S. in something called the P5 plus one. 
Diplomats love jargon. P means permanent, as in the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. The United States, France, Great Britain, China, Russia, plus Germany. Germany is our plus one. Of course, the Germans don't say that. Europeans call the P5 plus one the E3 EU plus three. Anyway, branding is the least of their problems. As negotiations stall, Iran builds more and more centrifuges. So here's the thing. It's actually not all that hard to design a nuclear bomb. The hard part is building the machines, like centrifuges, to make the material that goes inside the bomb. And that is what Iran is doing. Making material that might go in a bomb. Iran had moved its nuclear program forward enough that they could produce enough highly enriched uranium for one nuclear weapon in about two months. When someone tells you that Iran is two months away from a bomb, what that person means is that Iran has enough centrifuges to enrich enough uranium for one bomb in about two months. It does not mean that Iran is necessarily going to do that. At this point in 2013, Iran has been a couple of months away from a bomb for a few years. So Iranians, when they spoke about it, were very proud of it because for them it was a sign of national prowess and scientific advancement. This is Dina Esfandiari. She's an Iran expert at the Century Foundation. Keep in mind that this was exactly what the government was trying to do. It was trying to stoke nationalism around the nuclear program by building it as something that Iranians had done while under sanctions, while under tough economic conditions. Look at what we as a nation can achieve despite all of the walls that have been put around us and the difficulties that we have faced. That's how Iranian leaders look at the problem. So many other countries have nuclear technology. Why can't we? U.S. officials, like Wendy Sherman, see things differently. We thought that Iran being that close to having enough material for nuclear weapon was pretty horrifying because if Iran had a nuclear weapon, their ability to project power into an already volatile Middle East and threaten our democratic ally Israel was quite profound. It could also turn it toward Europe or if they had a long-range ballistic missile toward us. As someone who studies the spread of nuclear weapons, I think Iran building a bomb would be a bad thing. It is also important to keep something in mind. The P5 countries have about 9,000 nuclear weapons, or about 97% of the destructive power of all the world's nuclear weapons. Germany, our plus one, has U.S. nuclear weapons stationed on its territory. And our democratic ally Israel? They have the bomb, too. Still, it's not as simple as just saying there are a bunch of countries with nuclear weapons that are telling Iran it can't have them. Those P-5 nuclear weapons, especially the U.S. and Russian ones, are also pointed at each other. In the middle of the Iran negotiations, Russian forces invaded Ukraine, sparking a crisis between Washington and Moscow. There was one day we were getting ready to have a coordination meeting among the P-5 plus one. We were all milling around the room in Vienna where this was taking place, people getting their espresso. 
It was the morning that Russia had invaded Ukraine. And I was just insane over the arrogance, the just utter extraordinary and terrible action that Putin had taken. And I had a very strong professional relationship with my Russian counterpart, Sergei Ryapkov. So I went over to Sergei in this milling about, and sometimes you can have a very private conversation in a busy room. And I said, Sergei, what are you all doing? And he looked at me, took him a moment to realize what I was talking about. And he said, nothing is amiss, Wendy, and walked away. But he taught me a really important lesson. He knew if he and I stood there and argued about Ukraine, it would affect what we were trying to do in that room. In that room, not much was happening. Despite the best efforts of the diplomats, the P5 plus one group and the Iranians were talking past one another. Even mundane details, like where to meet, were just an opportunity for the parties to make things difficult. They wanted us to go to Almaty, Kazakhstan, which we did twice. And I think it was largely because it took Americans 19 hours to get there. So we traipsed around the world having meetings and not accomplishing a whole lot. With negotiations stalling, Obama started looking at military options. In fact, the president commissioned and deployed a new weapon that could bomb their once secret underground facility at Fordo. Pentagon officials reportedly have decided that their biggest conventional bomb is not big enough to destroy Iran's underground nuclear facilities. A conventional bomb to stop Iran from building a nuclear bomb. The Wall Street Journal says the modified version of the 30,000-pound bunker buster will be able to take out Iran's deepest, most heavily fortified sites. The new bomb was called the Massive Ordnance Penetrator, M-O-P, or MOP. Military acronyms are way cooler than diplomatic ones. The Massive Ordnance Penetrator may be massive for a conventional bomb, but it is tiny compared to a nuclear bomb. The bomb dropped on Hiroshima was about 7,000 times more powerful. Still, the MOP is big enough to give the military a shot at destroying Iran's underground nuclear program. We could take them out militarily, but we thought they would rebuild those facilities in three to five years and do it underground and in secret. Yes, military action was technically an option, but Wendy Sherman knew it was a terrible option. If the U.S. were to bomb Fordo, the Iranians could just start over. We could not bomb the program out of existence. Things looked pretty bleak, at least in public. I have a whole routine when I get on airplanes. When I was a diplomat, I would take an express meal, a glass or two of red wine. I'd put a blanket over my head, and I would meditate and go to sleep. And I've trained myself over the years to be able to do that. This was a little harder this time to go to sleep because I knew I was going to tell people about this secret channel. Secret channel. The entire time the P5 plus one negotiators were traipsing around the world making no progress, the real negotiation was happening away from the cameras, in secret, mostly in the tiny Gulf monarchy of Oman. In 2013, Iran had appointed a new foreign minister, Javad Zarif, the same guy who sent the fax trying to set up his own back channel almost a decade before. 
he had another chance. The U.S. also appointed a new Secretary of State, John Kerry. Kerry was tight with the Omanis. It's my pleasure to welcome the minister responsible for foreign affairs from Oman, Yusuf bin Alawi. And it's a great... John Kerry was really the origin of the Omani Channel. His Majesty the Sultan of Oman has uh, given the United States important advice and counsel, has helped us in terms of building alliances, building coalitions, and frankly, dealing with some very complicated, important uh, international security issues. Oman is possibly the perfect place for secret negotiations. The Omanis were the brokers of the nuclear deal, basically. This is Dina Esfandiari again. They were the, the perfect hosts for this kind of back channel because Oman is the only country in the region that Iran trusts and Oman is an ally of the U.S. and the U.K. And, um, and as a result, they were absolutely key in bringing all the parties together to meet for the first time. But they had different objectives. And those objectives were a little far apart. A little far apart doesn't even begin to describe it. I mean, they were miles apart. The American demand is that Iran give up all its centrifuges. To the Iranians, the idea that the United States can decide which technologies they can have and which they cannot is pretty hard to swallow. One of the main tenets of the Islamic Republic is its anti-Americanism. And so the idea that Iranian negotiators were sitting across the table from Americans and openly negotiating with the great Satan, and not just negotiating, but contemplating making concessions to the great Satan, I mean, that was enough to make many people's brains explode in Tehran. If the back channel were to become widely known in Washington, a lot of brains would explode there too. Of course, Wendy Sherman knew, but she had to keep it under wraps. I was brought into knowing about the back channel pretty early on by Bill Burns. And uh, he kept me very well informed about it. His chief of staff would walk down a sealed envelope to my office. My uh, chief of staff would hand it to me. Um, So there was a little cloak and dagger in that as well. Both sides want to explore the possibility of a compromise, a real compromise. But they can't do it in public. But in a secret channel... The U.S. and Iran were now talking directly together and, as a result, were able to, you know, air their grievances, their objectives, et cetera, et cetera, face-to-face. And I think that that is key. When the two sides closed in on a deal, Wendy Sherman joined the secret talks. When I knew I was going to go to Oman, only my chief of staff knew. And she had to do all kinds of squirrely arrangements And when I left my house, uh, my husband said, "Uh, good luck wherever you're going. Off I went and I came back and until this became public, he never knew where I went. In Oman, the two sides made a big breakthrough. We met in a beautiful guest facility that overlooked the sea. It, It was all a little surreal and I was only there for probably less than 24 hours and then came back on a U.S. plane unmarked U.S. plane. 24 hours was enough. The U.S. and Iran had a deal on paper. But there was also a catch. Wendy Sherman had to tell the P5 Plus One about the secret talks. 
Well, I didn't think anybody would be shocked, but they would be pissed. She told them. And then they all had to sit down and eat lunch together. My European colleagues were not happy. You know, it, it makes people confront the power of the United States. And my telling them about this secret channel confronted them with this somewhat unequal power dynamic. It wasn't the most digestible lunch because everybody was rather uneasy, but it was done. There was one more thing to add insult to injury. I could tell them what was in the document, but I could not give them the document. I told them they could go to our embassies and see the document, uh, but we didn't want leaks. Sometimes you do what you have to do. The thing is, the deal wasn't done. At least, not yet. Iran and the P5 plus one signed something called the Joint Plan of Action on November 24th, 2013. But this was an interim agreement. That we hoped would give us enough time, six months we thought, to finalize a full comprehensive plan. Six months. Pointless 19-hour flights to Kazakhstan, jetting off to meetings in Oman that they can't even tell their families about, unmarked planes. All that just to give themselves another six months. After 30 years of hostility, six more months was no small feat. For years, Iran had been piling up enriched uranium, while the P5 plus one piled on sanctions. Now, both parties took a step back. For the first time, the threat of war began to recede. But they didn't have a comprehensive agreement, at least not yet. There were still lots of devils lurking in the details. And to get them all sorted out, they were going to need a scientist or two. That's next on The Deal. The Deal is produced by me, Jeffrey Lewis, along with Aaron Davis, Mitchell Johnson, and Juliette Luini. Additional help from Jessica Varnum and Ellie Barney. Editorial support from Julia Barton. Our original score is by Hannes Brown. Thanks as well to the James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies, the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and Middlebury College. Subscribe to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, you can rate and review the show. I'm Jeffrey Lewis. Thanks for listening.